0: this is conquering columbus
1: hey everybody you're listening to the conquering columbus podcast and this is your co-host mike on today's episode josh is flying solo and he sits down with jim mcguire ceo of EnterTech. Early on, Josh and Jim talk about how Jim got his start in the chemicals and materials industry. Well, the
0: biggest differentiator was DuPont. They're a chemical company, basic and fundamental chemistry. Ashland, they're more of a formulator. There's like a difference between a chef and a cook. More experimental, it's just a different it's a different skill set. But that really being able to come from a hard science to DuPont to Ashland, and then I went to work for one of their customers who hired me to run a family business when I was all of 25. They gave me a shot and I turned them into a real company. It was a good learning experience.
1: Later, Jim speaks about of the early successes that he has and their first major success as a company. We
0: were really fortunate the first year that we were in business that Western Digital was building a new hard disk drive and it required new manufacturing, they had a leak, 3M couldn't fix the leak. I remember clearly being in a conference room with a dozen of their folks and myself and they're like, why would we stake this critical strategic project on a fly-by-night company operating out of the trunk of their car? I laughed and I said, I have no idea why I'd do that. I came back to him and said, you know, I raised a million million, we'll put a year's worth of inventory on the ship if you put us on the blueprint. And we'll have an agreement that if we go bankrupt, the formula goes to 3M. So de-risk, you gotta de-risk it. So net-net is, as we got on the blueprint, we delivered material in just in time for them to ship enough drives from Microsoft to launch the Xbox in time for Christmas.
1: Towards the end of the show, Josh and Jim talk about Arrow, a rebranding of an older company and Jim's goals for the future of Arrow. I think we're at a path of, over the next five years, really understanding
0: where the company's going. I think we have the potential with Arrow to do an IPO with it, because we we have the only technology in the world that's a direct replacement for spray paint that's validated in the production of vehicles. And in the production of vehicles, their largest generator of CO2
1: is the painting process. All right, that's enough from me. Let's get on with the show. Hey,
2: everybody. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we have Jim McGuire. Jim is the CEO of Entrotech, a vertically integrated provider of advanced material solutions. More on what that means later. He studied chemistry at Ohio State and founded Entrotech in 1999. Today, the group includes several companies such as Advanced Paint Technology, Entrochem, Inc., and Entrotech Life Sciences. We're excited to have Jim on the show today to talk about his story and the story of Entrotech. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Jim.
0: Thank you. Good to be here.
2: So we always start off trying to dive a little bit into your background and understanding, you know, the early days. And Mm -hmm. everybody has different milestones, whether that was in their childhood. And I always find it really interesting, especially with an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Was their their family entrepreneurial? You know, did you grow up here in Columbus? Maybe we could start off with some details on where you grew up.
0: Yeah, sure. I grew up uh, in Buffalo, New York. And I did come from a family that in previous generations were entrepreneurs. My father was an executive in corporate America, and that's what I grew up with. And, you know, we moved to uh, Canton, Ohio, when I was in high school because he was with Diebold Corp. And then came to Ohio State and studied chemistry. And it was uh, really studied chemistry because it was something that was really straightforward for me. And my father traveled all the time. So I thought if I study chemistry, I won't have to travel so much. And, you know, it didn't really work out that way. So it's odd,
2: though, that it was straightforward to you. I mean, I'd say out of all the horror stories I ever heard while I was at Ohio State, it always came from the chemistry department. Oh, it's horrible.
0: It's absolutely horrible. And I have no idea why my brain understands it, but it does. And just, you know, lucky for me to be fair.
2: And it just came really naturally to you.
0: Yeah, yeah, it did. And, you know, I think with, you know, with the combination of a business background and the family and the ability, so the ability to communicate and chemistry has worked out pretty well.
2: And so the company, your dad was an executive at, was he focused on the chemistry and science side of things? No, no, he was sales and marketing. So he just grew, he grew really on the true business side of things. Right, exactly. And then siblings, any siblings?
0: I have, uh, yeah, one older sister who's a nurse.
2: Okay. So you grew up, you went to Ohio State, you dove into chemistry you finish up at Ohio State. And, and is there anything in between there? Like was yeah, your college days there was pretty No, I was
0: uh, you know, I was I mean, I had you know, I loved my time at Ohio State. I was on a PhD track in chemistry. All was going really well and I won an internship to DuPont to work with a pretty important researcher, and I realized within a few days I really didn't like Industrial Lab America. And it was just too rigid. It just didn't fit. So, I, you know, basically I went up to Ashland Chemical at the time, which was a thriving company in Dublin, Ohio, and walked in the door. And luckily they talked to me. And, you know, I had a great opportunity there to start and get on the, uh, not only the product development side, but also on the customer interface side for business development. So it was a really great start to my career. What year was this? That was in 1983.
2: So DuPont versus Ashland Chemical, somebody who's really ignorant about the space, especially back in that time, what were the differentiators between what they were focused on? Well,
0: the biggest uh, differentiator was, DuPont is basic in chemistry. They're a chemical company, basic in basic fundamental chemistry. Ashland, although a chemical company, they're more of a formulator. That's a whole different, you know, there's like a difference between a chef and a cook.
2: Okay, so, so they're more a little bit experimental maybe.
0: Yeah, more experimental. It's just a different, it's a different skill set. But that really being able to come from a hard science to DuPont to Ashland, and then I went to work for one of their customers who hired me to run a family business when I was all of 25, and you know they gave me a shot and I turned them into a real company. So it was a good uh, it was a good learning experience.
2: So let's unpack that a little bit more, if you don't mind. So you're, you're at Ashland, you're enjoying what you're doing. Uh, you were there for how many years?
0: I was there for two years.
2: There for two years. You probably learned a lot about how the business works at that point, mm-hmm. and the ins and outs of it, and then you get this opportunity that comes up. How does that unfold?
0: Well really I think that was the first taste of how deeply entrepreneurial I was. I actually went to the customer. We saw that there was a there was a need for their capability set globally. They didn't know they were a regional family, you know, run operation very narrow focused and my boss and I actually saw the opportunity. We went down and proposed a business agreement where we'd partner with them and take them out into the public and they basically made me an offer I couldn't refuse and I started with them and you know, was there for uh, 14 years.
2: And so when you did that, was your focus on the chemical advancement, I apologize if I use like poor terminology, awesome. but advancing of the actual chemical substance? Yeah, I mean,
0: basically we had to develop new products. We required new chemistry and new solutions to chemistry because there's, you know, there's plenty of, in, in all of these spaces, there's plenty of established corporations that, you know, they have, the, they have the catalog. So, you know, if there's multiple catalogs out there, there's only one way to compete in that, and that's on price. And there's no, no reason for us to do that. So it's always been find the gap, solve the gap, create a product, create a solution, sell product.
2: And then what about the go-to-market strategy around that? Was that more difficult for you, given your background?
0: I think it was, you know, again, I think, uh, you know, as I, as I learn now, and I have these interns from Ohio State who I love, if, you know, if I, when I find some engineering students, material science students, if they grow up in a background where their father was, uh, you know, a business guy, You know, you grow up at the dinner, you learn a lot at the dinner table from your parents. So for me, I learned a lot. I knew more than I thought I knew.
2: So you jumped in and then the business side wasn't, uh, even if it wasn't something that you knew like the back of your hand, you didn't feel uncomfortable in those waters.
0: I didn't necessarily feel comfortable. I grew to be comfortable, but I also, obviously, I had really good resources from mentors and, you know, my father and stuff to really, you know, matriculate myself in those areas.
2: That starts at 25. How long do you continue to drive that company forward?
0: For 14 years, I uh, had a deal. They gave me a deal to buy him out. And uh, the, the uh, second generation who gave me the deal uh, passed away unexpectedly. And then, you know, then it was time. The, uh, the the third generation thought, man, we're paying this guy all this money. He's doing what he wants to do. There's no way he'll leave if we don't sell him the company. But I left. And I started my own deal here at the incubator at Ohio State. And it was, it was uh, November 1st, 1999.
2: That's another piece that I find really intriguing and would like to dive into more. Like you, you hit this level and they talk about the golden handcuff status. And I'm assuming at that point, you know, you'd built up enough to feel comfortable from a savings standpoint, but it's no. like, no, not at, not all. at, all. Not so at all. So even worse now. I had a
0: family. I had young kids. I mean, no, absolutely a big mortgage. I had already... You know, I was making you know, I, was, I you know, I, was, I moved up to Wedgwood when I was like thirty-five, so that was a big deal back in the day. And so, no, it was it, it was jumping off a cliff.
2: And what gave you the confidence that you could make it by doing that? Um, I, you know,
0: I think that's innate to entrepreneurs. Maybe you, you know, maybe you you can run to the fire and you kind of think you're going to get through it. And you know, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But you know, and also to be fair, I had you know, I, I had some good resources here in Columbus, where the guy that was running GBQ at the time was very good at helping me you know, understand you know, those, that, that end of the business, the finance piece. And then I, you know, we, we had great interaction on the early days with Huntington National. And this is just doing a startup with a private placement memorandum. So it was well thought up, and Mike Smith from Carlisle Patchen was, you know, was key to it. So what, was, what, what I think here will be a theme is, the, is you know, assembling a team of people around you that, have, that bring a lot to the table and a skill set. Don't assume you know everything.
2: And did you have a differentiated idea at that point, or were you going to go keep doing the same thing you were already doing?
0: You know, I was going to do the same thing I was doing, yet the last week that I worked for my former employer, we were the primary supplier of polymers to Western Digital for the hard disk drives. I, you know, I established that entire business in chemistry. All of that stuff was specified in with, you know, on blueprints. They couldn't change it. So starting from scratch, it was looking for new problems. I was very confident there would be new problems and there, and there absolutely were.
2: Did you have any non-compete challenges?
1: Uh, No. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you.
2: So you carry on, you go forward, you know exactly what you're going to start. Do you remember, looking back on that, what the early days looked like and the other team members outside of the financing and legal, those crucial elements?
0: I had recruited, I well, the private placement memorandum, this is back in 99, I raised 1.5 million in common stock with a 5 million valuation. And so I was able to recruit some of my old colleagues from Ashland to start with me in the business, quality guy, manufacturing guy, sales guy. And so we all started together again at the incubator at Ohio State and just, you know, really just start, you start from scratch and you do everything. And, you know, we were, we were really fortunate the first year that we were in business that Western Digital was building a new hard disk drive single platter called the Radical. And the reason they called it Radical is it had to sell for half of the, any previous ASP on a, on a disk drive. And they and it required new manufacturing. They had a leak. 3M couldn't fix the leak. That's who we compete with. This is somebody like 3M. Others couldn't, my old company couldn't fix the leak. We fixed the leak. And they called me out to San Jose. And I remember clearly being in a conference room with a dozen of their folks and myself. And they're like, why would we stake this critical strategic project on a fly-by-night company operating out of the trunk of their car? And you know, I said I, I laughed and I said, I have no idea why I'd do that. And I came back and uh, I said, let me come back. I came back to him and said, you know, I raised a million five, you know, we'll put a, we'll put a year's worth of inventory on the shelf if you put us on the blueprint and we'll have an agreement that if we go bankrupt, the formula goes to 3M. So de-risk, you got to de-risk it because again, why would a, you know, why would a, you know, a, you know, large multinational corporation stake a critical project on a startup company? That's, you know, they're all risk averse. So net net is as we got on the blueprint we delivered material in just in time for them to ship enough drives for Microsoft to launch the Xbox in time for Christmas. That was a big win. Yeah, and that's it. And so and we've uh, you know we've not looked back since. And so
2: they're worried about you guys getting over your skis and not being able to actually follow through with, with the commitments that you're making.
0: Oh, at every level. I think, you know, I think that's one of the things is that, you know, when I talk to younger entrepreneurs, engineers, especially in the science space, if they haven't had, you know, background in the real commercial world, you know, they, they really underestimate the complexity, I think, of what it takes to, to move from A to B and get material. You know, A, you know, not only invent a material, I almost call that the magic trick because some of us are just really good at it. You know, we're just fortunate. So it's the magic trick, but then you actually got to make it, you know, and the hardest thing of all in the world is getting a purchase order.
2: That supply chain is, is a real hurdle to overcome.
0: Well, it, yeah, no, just getting your product specified, getting your product specified, getting it, you know, getting it manufactured. It is supply chain, but it's more than that. Supply chain today means trying to move stuff from China to here. That's not the problem. The, the problem is, is, you know, these mul- these large corporations are completely risk averse and they're, they're, you know, and you know, no. The old saying is, is no engineer ever got fired for specifying 3M.
2: Same as the IBM philosophy yeah. on the software side. Right. So, so they'll have a series of specs they can and can't use on on different components they're making, and they're going to be very risk adverse to add a new spec there. So for you. Well, they add a
0: new raw material, a new raw material. Then you know, to become a new vendor, to get a vendor ID, that's a big thing. To be qualified, to have the quality systems in place to do it. You know, we had to get ISO 9000 certified our first year in business. That that was a big hurdle. You know, it was an early company. And, you know, it's just all the systems you have in place to be a critical supplier.
2: And so what does it mean to be vertically integrated in advanced materials?
0: Is, remember when I talked the cook to the chef? That's exactly what it is. The um, vertical integration for us is we can start with a petrochemical feedstock from an oil company. We can make a monomer. From the monomer, we can make a polymer. From the polymer, we can make a film. From the film, we can combine with other films to make a finished product. For example, our antimicrobial dressings that are used in healthcare, they kill they kill MRSA. That's a final medical dressing in a box that started from an alcohol we bought from an oil company. And that's very unique.
2: Is there really anybody else out there doing it to that 3M. extent? 3M.
0: Again, 3M is. and But 3M, I, I like to say I've got a lot of great friends at 3M. They're a great, great company, great competitor. Um, and, you know, we're, you know, just lo- love them. But, they, uh, be, but by, by being a large corporation with a lot of structure, structure gets in the way of freedom. And if you come to our facility on Kinnear Road, it, it looks, it, you know, to a lot of people in the Midwest, it might look unfinished. It might look haphazard. They might not get the architecture. But the reality is, is that, you know, what I found in my early days of the career, a lot of people in the area thought, you know, they think you can put a good scientist in a cube and get good output. But, you know, innovation and science is creativity. Creativity in the scientific mind isn't too far from creativity in the artistic mind.
2: So you really are fostering that environment of incubate, new technology, move quick, uh, something that 3M could never replicate with their scale. Oh, exactly. So the Xbox releases. What year is that? It's like two thousand. It was two thousand. Yeah. So two, then you'd been in business for how long at that point? One year. And then so much unfolds between 2000 and two thousand and twenty twenty two. We're at today, and right. additional companies come along. Going back to that milestone question again, you know, where do you see the milestones over the last twenty two years? Well, I
0: think the first the first phase was is you got to establish credibility. You got you got to be a real player, right? I mean, you know, you know, so. You can't be a one-hit wonder. So really spent the first number of years going out in the world through networks I had built through my previous career in life of finding challenging, really high-profile challenging problems to solve. And we just kept doing it. We kept doing it. And, you know, this is, you know, the tech community is very mature today compared to what it was 20 years in Columbus. You know, when I got out of Ohio State, all of my friends went to the coast. Nobody stayed here. Nobody. And, you know, it's just how it was now, you know, but I always knew, you know, there's just, you know, exceptional talent here and deploy that talent to these problems and we get solutions. So we were finding these problems, we kept solving them. So we, you know, we just kept proving ourselves in the various technologies we developed and, you know, had some breakthrough products.
2: And as you guys develop these, what does the go-to-market strategy look like for those? Are you going and, uh, and because I don't really understand necessarily how that works on the back end and I've never seen it before, Are you guys... Branding your own product and then continue to produce it over it and over again. It
0: depends. Yeah, early in the early days, we were basically um, private labeling for distributors and corporations. So that was really our strategy up through, for example, like Zag Invisible Shield for if you saw it at Best Buy for your iPhone. That when they went public, they had a two hundred million dollar market cap. One hundred percent of their revenue was our product. Um, Expel Paint Protection Film. They went on Nasdaq a couple years ago. Two billion dollar cap. One hundred percent of that volume is our technology. But but now as we've matured and our focus is the aero sustainable material technology to replace spray paint, that's all aero, that's all entritech branded technology. So as we go forward, you know, so in the life science space, it's our brand um, as well as in the uh, in the paint, you know, basically the paint replacement space.
2: From a manufacturing standpoint, how do you, do you not, or maybe you guys do have a lot of space and I'm, I'm not realizing, it. but like you would think you would need buildings after buildings the size of Walmart well, to create.
0: No, you have, you know, the film, film, roll-to-roll manufacturing is very efficient. And we have, we have outsourced partners that we work with where it's our teams, it's our specs, it's our raw material. We run, uh, basically we rent their machines. We have a network. In addition, we have quite a bit of capability on Kinnear Road um, that we're going to we're expanding over the next year. Um, so it's it, yeah. So it, it does take a fair amount of capital equipment to do it, and you know, to give you kind of uh, sort of an idea, you know, we're just under 1.8 million linear feet a month of film at five feet wide. So it is very high volume.
2: And then the contract manufacturing component helps, obviously, so you guys can scale up for those.
0: Yeah, when I started that, I was, uh, you know, again, some of my senior advisors, um, you know, one of them in particular, Scotty Patrick, who was my mentor at Ashland Chemical, directed me towards that. And it's not a traditional outsource. It's what Apple does. And, you know, so, so but it's, it was radical in the Midwest. So, you know, some of the automotive customers, well, well if you don't own your own equipment, you can't possibly be a supplier. And, of course, our competitors chimed in on that. But the reality is we had total control of the process. And we had ISO 9000 certification for manufacturing. We just didn't own the asset. So it gives us the ability to ramp quickly and de-ramp if necessary been a good model.
2: As opposed to, so when you, when you talk about it, the same model that Apple takes, as opposed to when other people would do contract manufacturing, maybe they wouldn't have as much control over that other environment. As what well, you a lot, do.
0: you know, a lot of the old outsource model is, is you put out, you you know, you, you put out an RFP and, you know, RFQ out to a bunch of me- contract manufacturers and they all bid on it. And then you give them the PO and you send them the spec and they make a product. You're not there. You're not qcing everything. You're not controlling every step. That's not how it's done. Like at Foxconn, there's nothing they do that 3M or that uh, Apple doesn't control.
2: And how did you get different organizations that were set up and and own the assets to agree to a relationship with you like that?
0: I think it's the ability to, you know, meet with them, find, uh, you know, again, it's, it's having that commercial experience, having connections. But then, you know, but then meeting face to face and, you know, our biggest partner at the time was a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey. And their asset would run like a nicotine patch and then they'd have to stop to change over to estrogen. But to change from nicotine to estrogen, they'd have to clean the machine and it was sat idle for 10 days. And so that's not of economic value to them. And so, you know, so it's pretty much a no brainer for them to allow us to rent that time. And, you know, maximize utilization of the equipment.
2: And that's got to be a pretty crucial first step to get. You know, entrepreneurs, it's funny. They always say, like, I got lucky in it. It's never luck. If you keep moving, you find opportunities. But when you think about, when I think about the way that you guys were able to set up a situation like that, if you came to me with a bunch of assets and I own them, I would say, well, you know, you'd have to have a lot, I'd have to have a lot of confidence in your ability to create pull in the market right. for me to say, okay, yes, I'm going to go in this relationship with you. But in that situation, they already had nothing to lose. No, oh. It's a perfect opportunity. Right,
0: exactly. And there there was no risk to them. Again, it gets back to the risk thing, de-risk it for them as well.
2: And then once you have one, you can prove that model with multiple and continue to scale from right. there.
1: We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode.
2: So we're going through a lot of years. And if we look back to where we we're at today, you know, what does the company look like from the number of companies, employee size? We're uh, from a engineering science
0: uh, business side We're, I mean, group wide, we're probably pushing 85 employees. You know, the extended contract manufacturers a lot more than that, but, you know, so probably around 85. And we're, you know, our, our, I think as we've, We've grown and we've matriculated our hard disk drive business. We sold that to TDK in 2013, so we exited that. We've really changed and matriculated our focus to the sustainable material to replace spray paint. So we're, as an organization, 90% of the organization is focused on that now. And Entrochem is a key supplier to that.
2: And why over the years, like if you look at 3M, I got to imagine they have thousands of employees at this point, right? When you look at them as your only main competitor, Um, why have you guys not chosen to do like this hyper growth, bring everything inside, build this massive? I mean, I know maybe part of it is because of how you guys can move quick and be nimble. Is that why you've chosen to stay rather small and lean?
0: Well, I think the lean is uh, is really an advantage and, you know, I think is a scalable advantage. So I, I, I really, you know, we have built and continue to build our own internal manufacturing assets and just in, you know, in parallel with the external assets. It really refines your focus on what's really important. What's really important to you when you use your iPhone is not that somebody in Cupertino made it. You really don't care about that. You care about the functionality, the engineering, the design. That's what you care about. So that's what they're focused on. The minute you start getting into major manufacturing assets, you can, you can quickly lose sight of what your focus is, and then you're focused on the manufacturing. The customer doesn't care. They expect it to be manufactured. You know, just like in paint. You know, what they care about with our film is color. They don't, care how we make it. <laughs> they just want their color and it has to meet performance requirements. How it gets there, they don't care
2: about. So that's like strategy to the core, right? I mean, you guys looked at the value chain and said, hey, this is where we're going to put our attention, the activities we're going to right. do, and here's not what we're going to do. What about your personal role as you look back? I mean, I bet it's changed so much, but <laughs> from you know looking back to those first couple of years to where it's at now, how has that evolved?
0: Yeah, I think it's you know, I mean, when you when you get into this deal, starting a company, there's a couple, you know, many guys go in. Okay, I'll start a business where it stays small, and they they create they create a great lifestyle business. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't I don't I think that's a great way to, you know, that's a tremendous way to feed your family and you know and go about your life. You know, my idea when I started this was to become a real corporation, an important corporation. So as you evolve to do that, you know, when you start off with a small team, everybody does everything. I'm the pri- I was the primary scientist still am. But as we've grown the business I've had to bring in I've I've recruited a tremendous amount of external talent of with experience to you know to really populate all areas of the business and then our internship program which I'm very proud of we've really you know we have such tremendous energy with that and we you know and, and you know a number of our employees have come through the internship program so I've really become, you know, and a couple of years ago, I hired my former boss from Ashland Chemical to re- really run the business so that I can focus on what, you know, what's really important, I think, to getting Arrow to the next step.
2: And then what about work-life balance? Has that been something <laughs> that, you know, I mean, I think most entrepreneurs probably struggle with it, but do you look back and has, has it changed over the years?
0: No, it really hasn't. It's interesting, you're kind of all in. When we, you know, when I started this thing and I was at the original incubator on Kinnear Road, Scotty would come in and meet with me on, um, you know, on Saturdays, and there was no one there. And, you know, a lot of the, you know, and none of these businesses survived. You know, I was there every day, every night, every weekend. I was traveling all the time to customers, and people always wondered where I was. It's like, I'm in front of a potential customer, you know, magic-like. And, you know, and then, you know, and then in uh, 2010, we started to be co-located where we were in, we were out in the Bay Area and here. And so I really got in depth with, you know the the community out there, the tech and the startup community, and they're they're animals out there. I mean, absolutely animals. And you know, and that's kind of how, you know, my I, I really haven't had a balance, and it's just I, I'm just too focused on what we're doing.
2: Then, as you bring on employees in an environment like that, and you are so hard charging and on the week because it's your life, have you ever found a struggle or? Uh, like how do you draw the line between expecting that much out of your employees versus what you expect out of yourself?
0: I don't think you can expect that. You know, you're not in a, you know, you're not, they're not in it. I mean, at the same level, you know, as I am. And, you know, and I, you know, and I want them to, I want them to have a work-life balance to some level. But we also, you know, we've also have, you know, in many ways, especially now when we're focused on the sustainability side, you know, you have a lot of mission-driven people. My last two hires were out of SEAL Team 6 guys with 30 years experience. I mean, you know, they talk about hard chargers. And it's just like, you know, my team, you know, when we step up, we step up. But you're, you're, not, you're not working from a clock. Like when we set up the office in of San Francisco, George Halinga got his PhD in chemistry out there. I had him here as an intern. And he basically told me, he said, Jim, you know, I'm not coming back to Ohio. I'm going to stay here and because uh, you know he loved berkeley he just loved san francisco and uh he said and by the way i surf in the morning and i'm like cool and he's an animal I and mean, he works you know he gets he just gets the job done so you just you try to have the right people that are you know to take it to the next level but then as it matures then it's different types of people
2: You mentioned now about you bringing in your older boss to step in for you. What do the goals look like for you in the future and the company for the future?
0: You know, I think we're at a path of, you know, over the next five years, really understanding where the company's going. I think we have the potential with Arrow to potentially do an IPO with it because we, we have the only technology in the world that's a direct replacement for spray paint. That's validated in the production of vehicles, and in the production of vehicles, their largest generator of CO2 is the painting process.
2: And so that's what you were sending me earlier, the link for. And what does your guys's go-to-market strategy look like? That's all your brand, then.
0: It's our brand. We, you know, we invented the technology for Boeing, and we quickly found out that that would be a 20-year, you know, slog to get any volume. So we pivoted to motorsport, and now we're on most. Most every top race team uses Arrow, And so we, you know, we've really validated the the technology and the brand in motorsport to be kind of an aspirational product. And we took that strategy to say, we need a lighthouse customer. So, you know, so after three years of testing in 2016, we introduced the technology to Land Rover and Gade in the UK. And I'm a huge Defender fan, you know, Range Rover, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I great reception because of the sustainability and the durability. And I went back to my board and I said, you know, it's going to take minimum six years investment before anything happens. You know, because it's just how, that's just how the speed of life. And net net in one year at the Frankfurt Auto Show, their premier vehicle at the show was decorated narrow. It wasn't done with a spray gun. And then in the end of 2019 at the Frankfurt Auto Show, when they relaunched the Defender, which was one of the most anticipated vehicle launches and over a decade, three of the five Defenders were aero. And then I'm proud to say in 2020, we became a tier one paint supplier to JLR and we're installing film in Slovakia. They're building a huge aero facility for us now in Sully Hall, UK. So we're off and running, basically.
2: And you're spending a lot of your time still on the science. No,
0: I'm spending really my time that I'm spending, the science is somewhat baked right now. You know, I do problem solving but really I've got a great team that's, you know, that's handling the day-to-day stuff is really, I'm working on point with the strategic customer at the strategic level. Because, you know, as, as I've found and learned over the years to get some, something like this adopted, you know, you have to have exposure to senior management. You have to have exposure to line engineers. And so for me, it's the strategy, the market strategy with a client is that I have different people interacting at different levels. And I make sure at the leadership level, I'm pushing things forward based on what their expectations are.
2: And then what about outside the business? I mean, you found this amazing, from my perspective, ability to align this mission-driven area with an area you're extremely passionate about mm-hmm. with how to make success. If, if people judge money as success, let's just call it money in life into this one phase. And sometimes we talk to entrepreneurs, they build their business, and the next phase is I'm gonna go follow my passion after that. or Yeah, I
0: mean, that's a lot of the exit strategy, but that's the, you know, that was the other cool thing when I got to, you know, the Bay Area, like George. George, you know, even after, you know, he finished his PhD, he was living in the dog patch with five of his friends and, and three of them had already been part of exits where they had eight figures in the bank and they're working on the next one. And, you know, I met Gary Fan, an old Ohio guy, orthopedic guy at uh, Stanford. And he was team doc for the 49ers. And he's, you know, a serial entrepreneur. Fogarty, who, uh, Tom Fogarty out of Cincinnati, he's like, he's the Thomas Edison of medicine. He sold so many companies to J&J, he's their single largest shareholder, individual shareholder. So there's a certain type of energy that just keeps, it's not about the money and the exit. But I'm, again, I'm not judging that. I mean, that's a great way to do it. But for me, I can't, that's not the path I've taken.
2: So what is life, after business, like if you guys go IPO, have you thought about what that vision looks like long term for you?
0: Well, I think that if, you know, if we do the IPO route, I you know, I already identified to bring in a CEO president and I'd be the executive chair and just keep driving on the strategic point of really developing the right, you know, customer client relationships at a very high level globally. I mean, that's what I would focus on.
2: What are you passionate about outside of business?
0: Uh, Racing. Anything in particular? So I race in uh, European Le Mans Series. I race in in the U.S. in IMSA. I also race in Asian Le Mans Series.
2: How did that get started?
0: Really just the same thing as a passion. I was always, you know, car guy. Worked on cars when I was in Ohio State, you know, and stole cars. And then just kept doing track days and things like that, just playing around. And when we located to California, they had the only Formula 3 racing school in North America where it was designed to make you a racer. And I just got in and got hooked and took off from there. Started racing in Europe 5. This would be my sixth season in Europe coming up right now.
2: Do you personally collect a lot of cars, just like normal driving cars? Yeah. Do you have a favorite or no?
0: It depends. You know, it really depends. I mean, you know, I love my old Defender 90 that used to be our tailgate truck. that was been renovated since then. Um, I've got a a lot of good history with that, but, you know, it just depends on the day.
2: That's awesome. So one of the final questions we always wrap up with is the theme here, and it's called Live Uncomfortably. Mm -hmm. And we always ask the guests, you know, how does it apply to your life and career and what does it mean to you?
0: I think you can say, you know, with us, if you understand Entratech, which is the original corporation, which is really a product-capable skunkworks, right? And we spin things out. So Entratech, the, the name is a derivative of entropy, you know, the thermodynamic law that basically states all things go to a higher state of disorder. And when I was in my previous career for 15 years, I'm watching, all, you know, like practically everybody wants to put everything in a nice, orderly little box and if anything squirts out of it, it freaks them out and they don't know what to do. So you got to, you know, to to embrace disorder is to is to live every second uncomfortably. And I think it's, uh, and to build an organization around that is really, you know, it's really fun as well. And then obviously, racing's a bit uncomfortable at times.
2: Yeah, I can imagine. It's a fast, fast version of uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for yep. joining us. Great. Thanks and, for having uh, me. And we'll talk to you next week.